You're listening to the Felony Inc. podcast on the Startup Radio Network. In America, we live in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth. And the current cost of mass incarceration via the prison industrial complex is incalculable. So anything that can be done to help curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. That's what we attempt to do, one show at a time and one guest at a time. Each week, we interview felons and non-felons attempting to make the world a better place for those currently incarcerated, families, and communities affected by the big business of prison. Felony Inc. Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All right, welcome to another edition of Felony Inc. Podcast. I'm your host, DJ Dick Hennessy, as always, joined by my number one co-host, Meg Thibodeau. Meg, how are you doing on this beautiful Portland afternoon? This is an amazing, amazing late summer day. I am doing fantastic. I'm really hanging in there. I think that um, we're going through some really weird times, but I feel like, you know, there's a lot of grief and a lot of things coming undone, but we're also... Um, blessed with the opportunity for creativity and innovation. And I think this podcast is really um, an opportunity to voice some of that. Our guests bring so much inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. And as the old adage, tough times don't last, but tough people do. I like that one. I like that one. I'm excited about our guest today. As am I. Our first time, uh, first time guest, but also the first guest that I know of that's actually from Australia. So he's calling in from Australia. It's a little earlier out there or later, depending on how you, how the, the clocks work over there. Um, our guest today is Damien Linane. He's an author, activist, and artist. The website is com. And we're going to be talking about his new book today, which is called Scarred. It's a psychological thriller. We're going to get into that a little bit later in the show. But first off, Damien, as you're uh, as you being a first time guest, typically how we do this is we kind of do a little rundown of uh, maybe your upbringing, uh, your history. What kind of led you on the path that you're on right now, if you don't mind me asking? No, fair enough. Yeah, it is um, uh, yeah, a little early here <laughs> here today. So, uh, yeah, no, it's funny. I'm, I'm normally like up late writing. So I've set my alarm like, you know, extra early, but th- th- that's fine. It's I should get up earlier anyway. But um, yeah, so I'm Damien. I'm 34. Um, I'm from Sydney, um, like inner Western Sydney. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's such a great, <laughs> uh, interesting question. Like, yeah, well, where to start with my life? So we'll, um, guess, uh, start close to the beginning. Um, my, my parents actually met in prison. Um, my father was in for burglary and my mother was actually a prison welfare officer. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I love to say that's a, the great start to a relationship, but no, no, that, 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 did yeah it didn't work out too well as it shouldn't be too surprising but um yeah um so (laughs) and from there like um yeah I had a pretty interesting childhood there was a protracted custody battle between my parents and um my father he had actually um I didn't um he never really talked about his childhood but he was actually from New Zealand and um he came over here when he was 18 and all I really know about his childhood was that he was arrested when he was about 10 and they put him in what's called a bore stall. Um, um, it's, it was like a juvenile detention system in, in the, in the Commonwealth uh, UK kind of system. And they let him out when he was about 17, 18 and um, he didn't get any education in there. 
Um, they, it was basically, so he was uh, Maori. I, I've heard Americans pronounce that like Maori, like, like native New Zealander. And um, yeah, like dark skinned people at the time, they kind of just got locked up and put in these hostels. So, I mean, he didn't, um, he had a really rough childhood and um, that kind of came out when he was trying to be a parent. Yeah. So he wasn't the, um, it's kind of sad. Sometimes I know he tried his best, but uh, yeah, he wasn't, um, wasn't an ideal father. He was, um, it spent a lot of time in prison and uh, yeah, he, he died a long time ago. He died when I was 20. So that's like 14 years. So um, he's not with us today, but uh, yeah. So uh, growing up with him was, was challenging and um, needless to say, I had a lot of um, anger issues and a lot of those anger issues actually related to the fact that um, uh, when I was about eight or nine, um, I was abused by a family friend um, and my father and my stepmother didn't believe me when I told them. And that was something I carried with me all my life. And that was really difficult to deal with. And um, fast forward a long time, um, yeah, um, we'll probably fill in the blanks a bit, maybe, I don't know, but uh, like, uh, yeah, what's that? So maybe 15 years later, um, no, no more than that. Um, like, like about, tw yeah, about 20 years later, actually, yeah, 20 years later, I'm in a dysfunctional relationship. Um, both of us are a bit, a bit damaged and we're, we're kind of bringing out the worst in each other. And that partner tells me um, that a few years before we started dating, she was raped by someone. And that kind of um, just drug up like kind of re-traumatized me from my childhood like in, in, unintentionally she didn't mean to but like um that just dragged up everything I'd been trying to bury um all my life and I was just I uh, had a like a kind of lifetime of repressed anger to take out on someone and um yeah the short story is I, I went around to the guy's house who she said uh, did that to her and um I threw a Molotov cocktail through his front window and the entire house burnt down that was um uh, the first time I'd gotten in serious trouble and with the police, I, I um, got arrested once earlier that got left off and let off with a warning, not very interesting. But yeah, that was my first serious trouble with the police. And um, I suppose it depends how you look at it. Um, uh, like, I don't know, maybe your viewers, uh, listeners aren't aware that um, sentences in America tend to be a lot harsher than <laughs> a lot of the rest of the world. So, um, but I, I, I was probably looking at um, three to five years is the general, um, like a uh, general sentencing for, for, for arson of that level that the whole house burnt down. But um, I got... Um, I actually got told, my lawyer told me I got lucky, I got a brand new prosecutor who um, who kept it at um, the local court where the, the maximum sentence is, is three years. And, um, but then I, um, it was a bit of a double-edged sword really. Um, I, I got assessed for what we call in Australia an intensive corrections order, which is, um, oh, by the way, feel free to interrupt me if I'm going into too much detail. Oh, no, but, um, keep going. Keep going. Yeah, um, I got assessed for what's called an intensive corrections order, which is um, one step before going to jail. Basically, you, um, you're legally in jail, but you're serving your sentence in the community. You have rehabilitation and you, you're like a forced volunteering, I guess, like community service and um, you have to go to therapy and stuff. And um, I have been diagnosed with high functioning autism and um, 
my forensic psychiatrist, her report to the court said that I needed counselling with a, a psychologist who specialised in autism. And there wasn't actually one of them in the, I moved to a country town called Armadale to do my undergraduate degree. I um, ironically finished a degree majoring in psychology a week before I went into prison. Um, it's probably not too common, but uh, yeah, so I was assessed for um, this, uh, yeah, type of intensive corrections order. And um, we didn't have a psychologist in Armadale who specialized in autism, who was taking clients. And um, my therapist is like, uh, my um, probation and parole rather, they're like, well, you're gonna have to move to a bigger uh, city. You either have to go move back to Sydney or Newcastle. Newcastle is where I live now. It's, it's the second biggest city in New South Wales, which is our, our biggest, our most populous state rather. And um, and, like, and she's like, oh, well, and there's also there's there's no funding for this particular kind of therapy, and I'm like, well, if I if, if I leave, um, if I move to back to Sydney, I'm gonna have to quit my job. Uh, how am I gonna pay for my therapy then? And, and she was like, well, yeah, I, I can appreciate that's tough. And I'm like, well, yeah, what happens if I if I can't afford it? And she's like, well, then we'd have to. Uh, issue a report saying you've violated the terms of your community service and you'd probably be arrested. And I, and I was like, well, uh, to, to hell with your <laughs> intensive corrections order. I think I'd rather go to jail. It sounds less stressful. And um, uh, I still think it would have been that the, the um, yeah, it didn't look easy, that community sentence they were arranging for me. But um, I, uh, I ended up, um, I didn't have enough money for my therapy, which they said over two years would cost about $20,000. But I did have enough to hire the forensic psychiatrist originally, and um, which was about twelve hundred, and and uh, she was the one who wrote that report. But um, saying I needed the therapy with your um, autism specialist. But uh, when it actually went to sentencing, um, the magistrate um, so it was a, held at a local court. So we had a magistrate, not a judge, and um, oh, there's probably legal differences in those terms between our countries anyway. But um. Uh, when I um, got sentenced, the uh, magistrate took into a consideration, like my, my forensic psychiatrist said, you know, obviously I've been carrying a lot of trauma from childhood. And um, so she reduced, she said it was it would have been a, normally a, like, a, a, like a two to three year sentence, but she um, reduced my non-parole period to 10 months, which is uh, fairly leaning, lenient for, you know, burning down a whole house at the end of the day. But um I just thought it was uh, uh, it was kind of my first eye-opening experience into the prison system, which uh, because that was when I realised like um, if I had had twenty thousand dollars, I wouldn't have gone to jail at all. But um, but the uh, but thankfully I at least had twelve hundred, and because I had twelve hundred, the um, I was able to hire a forensic psychiatrist, and the magistrate said she um, acknowledged that report and reduced my, um, my non-parole period by, um, uh, by about eight months. So it was, it was, I was supposed to have, but based on the, I got a two year sentence. So, and my non-parole period should have been 18 months, but she reduced it to 10. And I just thought, doesn't that just sum up the prison system, you know, brilliantly. Like I, you know, I had about a thousand dollars, which literally reduced my prison time by eight months. But if I had had 20,000, I could have stayed out of jail altogether. And it's just, and as I was getting sentenced, all I could really think about was like, okay, you know, this is a rough day for me. I'm going to jail, but like all, all I could get it, like, I couldn't get out of my head. Like, what about everyone who can't afford a psychiatrist? And, and we're, we're, we're judging people 
um, oh, we're, we're sentencing people based on, you know, what they can afford. You know, also, I could afford a lawyer. You know, I, I had a paid attorney rather than, you know, a public defender. And, you know, I suppose it's the same all around the world. You, you get what you pay for. Um, so, and yeah, that was my first experience in the prison system. And yeah, and it, from there, it was just an eye-opening experience of how this system just doesn't work. And um, yeah, you might have some more specific questions about that. I'll probably stop and give you a chance, chance to talk. But yeah, <laughs> it's it's really interesting to me that just the similarities uh, between America and Australia uh, with the legal system. Uh, I always say, people talk to me and they're like, "I'm like, yeah, you know, the system's absolutely racist. I'm, I would imagine it's somewhat racist in Australia as well. But first and mm -hmm. foremost, it's classist." Um, yeah. From the very beginning to the end, from police officers, their main job is to protect people that have money, and mm -hmm. uh, and to basically terrorize people that don't. Uh, that's that's kind of how it goes in America. I'm not sure if it's the same in Australia, but yeah. like you said, if you had twenty thousand dollars, you wouldn't even be in jail. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, what, no, we definitely uh, go ahead. Yeah, we definitely have like similar issues here. Like um. A lot of people don't know. Um, so in Australia, like the natives, yeah, Aboriginals, um, we they're actually the most incarcerated people on the planet. Um, Aboriginals only make up about like um, two to three percent of the Australian population, and uh, like a lot of people who identify as Aboriginal or Indigenous, they're they're, they're quite light skinned, so that they don't have a, like a strong presence in society. Like I actually spent some time living in America. Like you, you don't see like dark skinned people everywhere, like low, low or low Aboriginal people anyway, everywhere here, but, but they're actually, um, they make up about 29% of the prison population. So two to 3% of general population, like 29% of prison. And um, yeah, we definitely have like some same overall issues. Um, the, uh, something I noticed in America was uh, like in Australia, like in order to be a police officer, you need a, like an associate degree in policing. And um, so our cops are a bit, <laughs> Um, like, you know, more educated and, you know, like less, like we don't have like, like a lot of shootings, like your yeah, police shooting people here and stuff like that. So they're, they're not as bad as we noticed when I was living in America, but like, there's the same overall issue. I mean, yeah, that they're, they're at the end of the day, they're just a protective force that, you know, uh, you know, maintains the status quo for the, for the wealthy. And, um, but yeah, so it, it's the same overall issue, but I, I found it was, um, like um, staying in America, I, I, my ex-wife's actually from Nashville, and I, I stayed there for a few months. And um, yeah, I noticed there was a yeah big big difference with your police over there. <laughs> a little discrepancy for sure. Um, yeah. What's interesting is in America, you have to do at least a year uh, before you go to prison. Otherwise, let's say hypothetically, I was sentenced to ten months. That would be uh, county jail time. Um, in um, Australia, is it just prison? Is it, no matter what, yeah, like a day or. Like, um, that's something we um like uh I noticed in America like yeah there, there isn't really like a county jail as such it's just it's just prison um so like the terms prison and jail would be synonymous here and um likewise like we I like like I'm aware there's like different kinds of police forces in Australia like, in in Australia like every state just has like there's there's one police there's there aren't like different like um um yeah there's no like sheriffs or like you know, kind of like um different different forces like the like the you know the the state troopers they're, they're they're just like a different branch of the actual like um that they all the police go back to the same office kind of thing you know so there's um i think it's a bit simplified here we've only got like um yeah prison and jail would be synonymous so that there wouldn't yeah um yeah we, we don't have like an equivalent of a county jail here yeah that makes sense um what's uh, another thing that's interesting is um australia actually started off as a british <laughs> Yeah. A colony for there was like a prison colony. You know, a uh, colony. 
Yeah, 1788 yeah. through 1868, 160,000 convicts were transported from England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales to Australia. Yeah, so and, we were um, basically um, the dumping ground for the, the poor you know, people in, 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 um, in the British Empire, really. So, yeah, like... Um, it's an interesting way to you know start your country. Um, yeah, we will we all uh, have a bit of a laugh about it, really. But um, and then for those European folks to turn around and then incarcerate the indigenous folks of Australia in great numbers is uh, yeah, and um, yeah, feels very uh, very on par with colonialism. Yeah, and um, uh, there's actually um, it's uh, people often ask me like having a criminal record like oh is it is it is it difficult to travel and um, the ironic thing is the only two countries I found that it's particularly difficult to get into uh, uh, with a criminal record are the USA and and Australia and um, you know thankfully they have to let me back in here because I'm a citizen but um I, I saw a joke a while ago like um a comedian he came to the border in Australia and they're like um do you have a criminal record and the guy said. I didn't realize you still needed one to get into this country. And, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that, that, that was brilliant because yeah, that was, um, yeah, yeah, like we were just, they, the, um, yeah, the British, they were um, sentencing, oh, it was ridiculous sentences, like, you know, getting a couple of years for stealing a loaf of bread. And, you know, once they started doing that, eventually they ran out of space and they needed an entire continent to, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to warehouse their prisoners, you know, because, uh, yeah, yeah, UK is, is uh, yeah, it's, it's not a big country, you know, they can only build so many uh, prisons there, I guess, but, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> can you go to Canada? I'm not actually, um, I've, I've, I've noticed with, like, the first world um, countries, a lot of them, like, like, um, like the UK, for example, uh, the question on their, like, um, their questionnaire is, like, uh, I think it's... Um, have you been to prison in the last 10 years? And um, if the answer, so if it's more than 10 years old, I don't think they care anymore. And if it's less than 10 years, they take it on a case by case basis. So, I mean, my plan was to um, like travel around and that, that seems very consistent within the um, you know, Anglosphere uh, in the first world, if you want, if you want. But um, uh, yeah, my plan was for the, until that 10 years ran out, um, to travel around Australia and the, the, and the third world. Um, Cause yeah, there's plenty of places on earth that I have done a lot of traveling in my life. I've you know, been to America four times, but um, um, lucky I have uh, because yeah, um, the reason it's so hard to get in Australia is um, uh, into America is because um, it's my understanding America is the only country that doesn't have a spent conviction scheme. So it doesn't matter how long, how, so even in Australia, um, if your sentence, it was less than three years, um, and if you don't commit a crime for 10 years, your conviction is considered spent. So you don't actually have to tell employers about it. Whereas, um, yeah, America doesn't have that. Your, your, your conviction never expires. I actually, um, I, a friend of mine's a uh, lawyer and, and she was telling me she um, uh, like, uh, was doing the paperwork for uh, like a, um, a retired lady who wanted to visit America. And she had to schedule a interview with the US consulate here because she had a conviction for shoplifting when she was 19 and like 45 years later, she wants to, you know, go, go party in Vegas or whatever. And, and it was largely a formality, but that was like, you know, anyone with a criminal record had to be interviewed to you know, be assessed as a threat. And, you know, so she kind of had this perfunctory interview and I, I think the staff were actually like, yeah, you're okay, but you know, you, you legally had to do this. So yeah, that's, that's, thankfully we don't, um, yeah, things aren't as harsh over here. Like I've been told, like um, 
like employment in particular is uh, a lot harder to get in in the US with a criminal record. I mean, it's it's harder here too. But um, yeah, non, I think I think America is just the extreme with your prison system all all over. So you know, you've got the same problems, but they're just a lot worse there. And at least that's my impression. <laughs> Definitely, our prison systems have been created as a prof- for profit business. So it really mm. on. A, fu- a foundation of racism and classism and creating a slave mm-hmm. labor market. So there's not much in our prison system that's truly about re- rehabilitation. Yeah, and uh, as yeah. the world is kind of probably noticing at this point, not a lot about our government is focused on the well-being of people, rather the profit margins of the elite and the folks in power. So we definitely have a situation that would be great if we could uh, throw a Molotov cocktail at, not to minimize <laughs> your charge, yeah. but I think burning this house down might be just the ticket. Yeah. <laughs> we have a house that needs burning down. It's big and white. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, we, um, we're, we're monitoring, or, or I am at least, I'm very, like, um interested in world news and yeah we're like every day i get my updates to what's happening over there and i'm like uh well it it's definitely seems like a bit of a circus <laughs> like when i remember i was actually in prison when um um yeah, yeah trump was uh I, I think i got out like about two months before i actually got elected yeah we would have been two months and, and i was even i was just chatting to everyone in jail like i'm like well, uh, you, at least you can say this, the world's going to get a lot more entertaining if that man gets elected. And um, it's, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, sort of like a uh, Stanley Kubrick film or, uh, you know, mm. so <laughs> entertaining as in, you know, mm. horror. Um, yeah, yeah I, you know, on the bright side, I think there are a lot of systems that were hidden in the dark that are now wildly illuminated that we're mm-hmm. able to actually look at really honestly for the, you know, for lack of a better word, for the shit show that they are. And we can really do something about it. So I like to think that this presidency has laid bare many things that are that are mm-hmm. not working in our, our country and people are really, really inspired to do something about it. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like the- that. It's um, it's producing, like I said at the beginning of the show, it's producing innovation and creativity and folks that are really have a passion for elegant solutions and and moving forward in a better way. And so there's hope. Yeah, like I'm uh, assuming he doesn't get reelected. I think, that, yeah, um, yeah, it's just a bit like uh, the the thing that blows out. Like I, I bring this up with people all the time. They're like. Um, you know, even at his lowest, like he still had a approval rating of like 35% or something. And, and 35% of, you know, whatever the US population is, it's a lot of people, you know. It's a it's, lot of people. Yeah. And, um, well, we're not just dealing with folks that are thinking for themselves. Rather, mm. we're dealing with a massive media propaganda conspiracy as well. And the psychology, which really applies to the things we talk about on this show, is the deep need that people have to belong. Right. So mm. people, people think in a way that, um, you know, helps them belong to their community or belong. They, they create ideologies for themselves that help them be a part of something. And so 
other things are being laid bare as well. You know, the prison system being one of them, but it, you know, there's some deep divides right now, but yeah, I like to believe that people are good at heart and are doing their best to feel like they're protecting their families and their communities. It's weird stuff though. It's really weird. It must seem very, very strange from different parts of the world for sure. If I didn't have a felony, I might try to immigrate, immigrate to Australia. (laughs) um, Yeah. I've been told I'll never get into Australia. Um, yeah, I've been told it's very helpful. Like we, um, who was it? Um, oh, I, I, his name escapes me. I'm not a boxing fan, but the, uh, the, your guy who, um, had like, he's like 50 world cha- like championships and he, um, had, uh, he's, he's got a conviction for domestic violence and well, uh, he, that could be several people. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, like very famous within, yeah, like, and um, he, uh, yeah, they wouldn't let him in because he had a like, um, yeah, a conviction for. Uh, There's uh, a famous uh, Mayweather, I think. That's yes, yeah, Mayweather. Probably Mayweather. That's, that's who yeah, it is. And yeah, so even he couldn't get in Australia. Like, um, they were actually, um, I remember, uh, they were having a hoo ha about letting Snoop Dogg in once. That was uh, what it was, Snoop Dogg. Yeah, and that, they they actually they did let him in, but um. Yeah, he, he, he had some he had some tough questions to answer. At, at, yeah. At yeah. So we need to quit. Stop for a quick break and yeah. run an ad, and then we'll be right back and we'll keep going and we can talk about your book and some of the projects that you're doing. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Felony Inc. Podcast. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Damien Linane. Uh, author, activist, and artist. Uh, the website is Damien, L-I-N-N-A-N-E.com. Gone all the way from Australia today. Uh, the book we're about to talk about right now is called Scarred, and Scarred is is not for the squeamish. It's a poignant debut about serial killers on the streets of Sydney. Uh, Damien, could you elaborate a little bit on this? Yeah, so I'd probably like to start talking about how I um, uh, started writing the book. And it, that was um, had to do with, like, the, the lack of resources um, we have in prison here. Like, um, for what it's worth, I've been told it's, like, um, quite easy that to, to study it, like, like your GED and things in America. Um, in New South Wales, where I'm at, um, the education um, statistics are dreadful. Like um, 0.1% of inmates are able to study at a tertiary level. And um, the uh, uh, the level for like um, just studying at all, I think it's um, it's, it's like less than 20%. It, it's, it's quite dreadful. So I um, I went in and they told me straight up, they're like, oh, look, um, yeah, that there's no studying opportunities at this prison. Um, uh, there's there's no therapy available in minimum security prisons, and I was also assessed as a low to medium risk of um, reoffending. And in, elig- in order to be eligible for rehabilitation, you needed to be assessed as medium to high. You know, they won't want you to get worse before you. They'll help you get better, kind of thing. So I 
I went in and after about a week, I realized there was going to be no education, no therapy and no rehabilitation for me in prison. So basically it was 10 months of sitting in the corner and um, I was like, all right, um, you know, my, my backup plan was if I go to prison, I'll, I'll go back to uni, I'll, I'll do a master's degree. And, uh, but I couldn't do that. So I'm like, all right, all right, now I need a new backup plan. And I'm like, all right, let's, let's write that book I've been thinking about for years. And so I, um, I started writing it about a week in. I, um, I'd had this like kind of idea for, um, it was actually not so much an idea for a book. It was an idea for a scene in my head. And I, like, I just, I, all I had was paper and pen in my cell and I, I started, started writing and, um, yeah, five months later, I um I had a finished draft. It um wasn't easy. Like I uh, I um kept running out of paper, and like for the first uh, couple of months, um so you can um, I assume it's the same in America. You can order things in prison in Australia, but when you order them, they they turn up like two weeks later. Like you know your 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 paper pen, you know like you know your extra food like your candy bars, whatever. And um, but for the first two months I was in, they they kept um moving me around because we had a like a horrendous overcrowding system uh, problem in the prison here and so they kept moving them around and and you know when when that when you order that stuff when it when uh, if you're if you're not at the prison anymore they don't send it on they they refund it and send it back and then you have to try again at the new prison so for the for the first two and a half months or so over like two months or so i um yeah i was uh, like it was, uh, yeah, the, yeah, you're writing a novel in prison, you know, chapter one, the search for paper. And I was just like, I was trading my desserts with other inmates for <laughs> extra paper and stuff. But, um, I mean, that was what essentially got me through my sentence. I, um, like I, I was sent to a working prison. We, uh, you have to work to, to stay there. And, um, yeah, like at the end of the day, we'd, um, we'd have two hours free time before they locked us in. And, um, everybody else kind of didn't, you know, kind of dreaded, you know, getting locked in. Whereas I, I actually look forward to it. I'm like, yeah, this is where I come alive. This is where I, this is how I escape from prison. I, um, the only time I felt like I wasn't in jail was when I was either reading or, or writing, creating my own, you know, fantasy world in my, um, for lack of a better term. But, um, yeah, so I just, yeah, definitely took up the first half of my sentence, but, um, yeah, I, and I had to, um, hide the the novel from the guards because um uh you know it was a, obviously very as you mentioned like it's it's a pretty violent book you know not for the squeamish and um but more so than that i was um it was tangibly linked to my crime so the the, the um the magistrate when she sentenced me she she called me a vigilante and um so that was kind of the um the idea i rolled with i um i took like the existing idea in my head and i kind of merged it a bit and i i, I um I wrote a novel about a vigilante serial killer and um yeah if the establishment had found out i was right like i mean you're not allowed to do things that are construed as violent anyway so i mean i, I would have been in trouble um regardless if they had found out i was writing it but um yeah if, they, if it would have been a lot of red flags if they had found out i was writing a novel that was like linked in even in theme to um to uh what what i was that my crime was actually was so um you know, I, I attacked someone who I was told was a rapist and I targeted someone rather. And, um, yeah, my um, character in my novel um, does the same. He just takes it a lot further. And I, I guess you could say, um, yeah, that my main character is just like an extreme caricature of myself. Like I took even like my childhood, you know, my, my father was was violent, but he wasn't, you know, psychotic. You know, he hit me, but like um, 
Jason, my main character in the book, his father actually tortures him, like, 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 yeah, tortures. And um, he, um, uh, I guess the, the uh, idea I had in my head was like, all right, I know like what my upbringing was like. I know how much that impacted um, my thoughts and behavior and, uh, you know, without, you know, pushing the blame in every on completely off myself, you know, it, it, that definitely had a lot to do with why I eventually ended up in prison, my, my upbringing. And, um, and I was like, all right, well, I know what happened to me and how I ended up like, um, what, how far can I push like this character in my book? How far can I exaggerate what um, happened to me before he completely goes like off the rails entirely? Like before he, like he can no longer function well in society and he just turns into a complete killer. And I guess that was, um, that was the fantasy world I escaped into. I was like, all right, yeah, how far can I push this person? And, um, and let's see where, where he ends up because uh, yeah, I had, um, at no point did I really know how, um, the novel was going to go more than a couple of chapters in advance every day. I couldn't wait to get locked in because uh, yeah, I wanted to know what happened next really. Yeah. So that sounds uh, extremely interesting. I'm, uh, I'm actually, uh, I'm going to buy the book. I think after this interview, I'm, I want to read it, honestly. Awesome, uh, so had you, uh, I know you had a psychology, uh, psychology degree. Had you taken writing classes or courses before that, or had you attempted no. to write anything before this? It was just an idea that no. came to you. Not as such. I mean, I'd been asked to write a couple of blog posts for some activism stuff here. And, um, actually my, my, um, my main hobby, uh, people find this funny. My main hobby is actually writing for Wikipedia. Um, I've been doing that for about, um, 12 years now. Um, I'm actually ranked in the top 1,500 editors um, worldwide. If you actually go to um, the article on Wikipedia, Prison Education, um, that's like almost entirely my work. I, I, I wrote that. Um, yeah, if you want to, but uh, see some. So I've done a lot of I've done a lot of informal writing because I mean you know that that's all volunteer stuff. It's not paid, and you know um, but I, I'd never you know tried to make a concerted effort to to um, I'd never written fiction before. Um, that's for sure. So it was uh basically a, a new skill I, I developed. I, um, and then once that, um, yeah, I finished my the novel after five months. And after that, I, I taught myself to draw. So I figured, you know, if I, uh, if I don't leave prison with at least a new skill, I, um, you know, I've, I've wasted the time. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, no, it was uh, definitely a completely new experience and just something I pretty much had to do to, to stay sane. But I'm, you know, I, I don't regret prison at all now because I, um, I'm, like really happy with how my life's going and uh, yeah, it's kind of made me who I am. And uh, yeah, and I, I definitely wouldn't have a published novel. <laughs> I never would have made it. How can people time. find it? How can people find your book? Yeah. So, um, it's, so I actually got picked up by, um, 10th street press. They're a small publisher. They're actually based in Seattle. So I, I actually have a, a American publisher, but, um, so if you, um, uh, like, uh, I can, uh, like it's definitely on Amazon and on Kindle, but it's on, uh, it's on most, um, ebook formats as well, like, um, uh, Apple iBooks and, um, uh, Kobo and stuff. But, um, yeah, so if you just Google scarred by Damien Lenane, but it's, yeah, Amazon's probably, um, the first place that comes to mind for the U S cause I'm, I'm not really, yeah, not really sure. Like my, most mainstream booksellers sell it here in Australia, but I'm, I'm not too sure about U S but yeah, you can definitely get it on Amazon or find out. Yeah. Just, just Google and you'll, you should be able to find out. Are some you more. working on your next book? I am. I am. Um, everyone keeps asking like, when's the next novel coming out? And I'm like, well, I'm not sure if there will be another novel. Like I, um, I, uh, yeah, I had an idea for a novel and then I wrote it down and now it's gone. You know, it's, it's all, it's on paper. I'm, I'm actually, um, I finished writing the first draft of a memoir. Um, 
I've actually sent that to the same person who did the manuscript assessment for my novel and, and I'm just waiting for her feedback. I should get it back in a couple of weeks and um, then I'll start making some tweaks and sending it out to, to publishers, see if um, anyone's interested in that. But uh, yeah, so uh, hopefully before too long, I'll have a um, like a memoir autobiography out. But um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a completely different creative process to, to writing that. But uh, yeah, hopefully that'll be out before too long. Yeah. Well, that'd be awesome. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, absolutely. That's huge. You know, it's it's kind of crazy. For the people listening, uh, how do you, what advice would you give to them? I mean, you went from essentially penning a 400-page novel in your cell within five months, hiding it from the guards, this whole thing, um, and then you were able to take that and turn it into a reality and actually get a, you know, a published uh, product on the, on the shelf there. Uh, what you don't have to say specifically how you went about it, but what advice would you give to people that kind of want to follow in those footsteps that might have an idea and want to write it down? Yeah. Well, um, the first thing people generally ask me is like, Oh, like how did you write a novel in five months? That's uh, everyone keeps telling me that that's a short period of time. And, um, my answer to that was just like, um, just, just be consistent. You know, I, I spent about an hour and a half to two hours writing a day and, um, yeah, it was just that consistency really that, that chipped away at it. But, um, and from there I just, um, I guess I was a bit too stubborn to give up. Like, um, you know, I, I couldn't really send it to publishers once I was inside. I waited till I got out and I um, sent it the first publisher and um, got my first rejection letter. And I was, <laughs> I was like, all right, well, uh, clearly it wasn't good enough. So let's, let's pull it out and I, yeah, and, and have another look at it. And, you know, I read over it and made some tweaks and, um, and sent it out again. And uh, this went on for quite a while. It, it took me about three years to find a publisher, which um, some people have told me is actually quite short as well. Sometimes it takes a lot longer, but yeah, I ended up getting 12 rejection letters, which was the same number as J.K. Uh, Rowling, um, which kept me motivated a bit. I'm like, oh, well, if, yeah, that's uh, um, is something you have to understand is when you send to publishers, if they're too busy, they, they, they don't even read it. So, you know, um, oh, like, I'm, I definitely think a few did, but, you know, some of them just would have been like, yeah, who's this? Never heard of him. Um, yeah, like what, what else is in the pile? So it's a little bit demoralizing at times. Like I actually um, made a decision like about a, uh, about six months before I found a publisher. I'm like, right, if I can't find one in a year, I'm just going to bite the bullet and self-publish. And, uh, but uh, thankfully, uh, yeah, the, um, yeah, found one uh, about, <laughs> with about six months to spare on, on the you know, self-imposed time limit I had. But um yeah, basically, just every time I got a rejection letter, I um I pulled it out and I um I my manuscript out and I um I uh, had, I'm like I just tried to improve it a bit more and you know, eventually I, I hired an editor because I was kind of hoping I'm like all right you know if I find a publisher that they'll edit it for me but that was um yeah proving difficult so I'm like all right well maybe I need to polish this up before um, publishers will look at it more and um yeah so it was just um. I actually have a close friend of mine. Um, she sent her novel out to to the first publisher and um, got a rejection letter. And she and she said, uh, and that was the point where I realised that I didn't handle rejection well. So I just went straight to self publishing. And uh, <laughs> and I mean, she definitely would have saved herself some stress. It, yeah, it was difficult. Um, like it, it's yeah, really demoralising seeing those rejection letters come. And um, and you you put so much work in and, and one actually said one publisher just said straight up said to me they're like Damien really enjoyed this but uh, we don't publish things it's violent I'm like okay well <laughs> um yeah at least that's that's some feedback for um at least they liked it you know so there's little things that kept me going but uh yeah basically it was just uh a lot of refusing to give up and um and yeah just uh 
trying trying to bear with it and hoping something yeah came of it at the end and yeah thankfully uh yeah got got there in the end and yeah I'm really happy I, I um I did that now I'm 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 not so fussed about self publishing now I yeah, if I can't find a publisher for my autobiography I'll probably self publish because there's yeah pros and cons with both but uh, yeah no I'm I'm really glad I I spent the time um yeah trying to find a publisher it yeah, worked out in the end. So exciting. It's so fun to see folks succeed in art and literature and, and these kinds of practices, particularly people who have been through difficult things. I think stories are so, so valuable for, for us to share with each other. So we don't, you know, it helps to helps us to feel connected. Um, so we don't have too much time left and I don't want to miss out on hearing about your activism work. Tell us right. what you're up to. You've got a campaign uh, with an American inmate that's really very interesting. Will you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, I'll be doing such a little bit of campaigning like in Australia as well, but the, the, probably the main thing I'm doing is um, I was, uh, yeah, I read a lot of news and I was reading, it was about two and a half, um, maybe even three years ago now, um, saw a news article about um, Bobby Bostick. He's an um, inmate in the US, uh, in, in, in Missouri, and um, he committed two armed robberies on the same day when he was 16, back in uh, 1995, back to back, um, kind of a rash decision. And um, yeah, long story short, uh, the judge gave him 241 years, um, which is the longest sentence ever given to a child in Missouri for non-homicide offences. And uh, yeah, I was reading about his article, because um, this article about him, because uh, he had a Supreme Court appeal coming up and that was what the article was about. And I, um, I, I, I followed that up because I was quite moved by his story. Um, the interview with him it was with BBC News. And, um, and then a couple of weeks later, they had a follow-up article saying the Supreme Court just denied to hear his appeal as, as they do for, you know, more than half cases without giving any reason. And I, uh, I've, I've, figured he must have been crushed. So I, I wrote him a letter um, just saying, oh, hey, this is who I am. And I just wanted to say, I'm, I'm sorry this happened to you. And um, he wrote back and um, we've been pen pals for ever since. And uh, I was kind of surprised that um, he didn't have a lot of people like campaigning on the ground for him. Like he didn't really have anyone um, in Missouri. And he, and he was like, oh, can you help me? Can you, um, can you write a letter to this person? Because oh, I can't get anyone else to. And I was, I was, quite surprised I'm like yeah sure and it's um it's just kind of snowballed from there I ended up creating his um his Instagram account uh which you can follow at free Bobby Bostick and um and I actually ended up finding someone on Instagram and recruiting her uh to help me with that and uh, it's funny um she's in Moldova Eastern Europe and so we've got these two people campaigning for this guy in Missouri one's in Australia and one's in Eastern Europe and um I've actually been, uh, there's a petition uh, to give Bobby clemency that was submitted to um, Governor Mike Parson in um, Missouri. It actually got um, bipartisan support, 50 Republicans and Democrats signed this um, petition that was introduced by um, uh, one of the uh, Republican um, House of um, Reps members in Missouri. And um, at the moment, what I'm doing is, um, well, I'm always doing something for Bobby, but um, I'm contacting a lot of um people running for um uh the office in missouri because i'm hoping to get a bill introduced that would um there was a bill introduced this january uh that would have given any child in missouri that was um sentenced to more than 15 years the chance of parole after 15 years and unfortunately long story short coronavirus kind of killed that and every bill that was in, introduced around the same time 
So I'm sending a lot of emails to um, senators and representatives, asking them to, you know, contact the governor and um, uh, ask him to approve the clemency request and also to um, you know, try and get a new bill on the floor. And um, it's funny, like two of these like um, reps have um, asked, like, oh, can one actually said, can you meet me for coffee? And I'm like, well, I can't. But uh, I'm in Australia, but you can definitely call. And so I've actually spent some time on the phone with um, a few people in, in, in the US this week. And uh, it's been, yeah, that everyone's kind of, um, you know, that finds it fascinating that I'm, I'm the guy that's uh, campaigning for Bobby. And but, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a long haul, but it's starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel. And um, hopefully something gets off the ground um, soon. I mean, a lot of it's just, uh, we don't think the governor's very supportive, but we might have a new one in November um, and hopefully she will be if, if Bobby's clemency uh, request doesn't get approved before then. But um, yeah, that's been a really interesting experience. Um, uh, yeah, there's, uh, um, it's funny, the, the pen pal programs in, in the US are so much, for, for inmates are so much better than the ones in Australia. Um, yeah, that's probably reflective of how many people are actually in in prison in in the US as much better systems. And so I've got I've got two pen pals in prison, and one's in Missouri, and the other one's in Texas because um, I was in minimum security in Australia, and um, in order to be in minimum security here, your sentence needs to be less than three years. So everybody I was in with has been released now, and uh, we don't really have pen pal programs here. So. Um, if I yeah, wanted to reach out because I knew how important it was to um, have a pen pal in prison. And so when I wanted to reach out to someone, I, I kind of had to go <laughs> to the US because we don't have those kind of systems over here, email a prisoner kind of thing. So um, yeah, but it's been a really um, interesting, interesting journey and hopefully um, something really positive comes out of it soon. Yeah. That's, that's crazy, you know, honestly, uh, that's extremely reputable. Uh, just the thought, I mean, I know how hard it is just to get letters and, and mail when you're in prison from people that live like five minutes from the prison, you know, let alone yeah. you're getting written and, uh, advocate, you know, someone advocating for you from across the world. So definitely free Bobby Bostic. Uh, we're already following that page on Instagram. If you're not following it, definitely give it a follow. Look at it. It's outlandish. And um, it's just, you know, the more the more stories like this we can hear about and we can actually do something about this. I feel like the closer we can get to actually hopefully turning things in the right direction. And um, that's something that's just ridiculous. Yeah, like obviously outlandish sentencing in America. Um, We only have like literally one minute, two minutes left. Uh, Just real quick. uh, When you were in in jail, in prison, uh, you said you could only write like a stick figure. Um, and now you have Vigilante Studios, which is you drawing photorealistic portraits uh, by commission. Just tell us real quick uh, about that, and then we're going to have to wrap the show up. But uh, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, so um, I'm on Instagram at Embers of Retribution, which is a bit of a play on the crime I committed. But um, yeah, I um, I used to be one of, about a, a few months before I went into prison, actually, I, I paid a friend to design a tattoo for me on the grounds that I couldn't draw. And then... Um, after I finished my novel, I'm like, well, I need something. What am I going to do for the next five months? And um, started teaching myself to draw. And, and people kept saying to me, like, what, what do you mean you've never drawn before? This is, um, you, you know, um, it, I guess it was just a natural talent I never realized I had. And because, uh, you know, I never, you know, I thought I didn't know how to draw because I never tried. And um, yeah, um, a few years, like, even after. Uh, a couple of months I was making more money in prison from um, selling portraits to other inmates than uh, 
than uh, than I was at my job. Not not that you know that probably says more about how low they pay people in prison more than <laughs> how much I was getting uh, paid for portraits. But uh, yeah, it was um, yeah, like I said, I uh, I'm really happy with um, wouldn't take prison back at all because yeah, not only have I published a uh, novel now, I um have a you know, very small business. I, uh, it's more of a hobby I get paid for than a concerted effort to make money. But yeah, I, I just I, I love drawing and I, it's so thrilling to that people want to pay me to do these portraits for them. And yeah, definitely something I never would have developed if I hadn't had so much free time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, for those of us listening, uh, definitely check out the website, Damien, L-I-N-N-A-N-E. You can check out the some of the artwork. I, I looked at it, extremely impressive, man. Like I know how difficult it is to draw. I used to be into art a lot and my girlfriend's a tattoo artist. So uh, the skills that you have and what you've been able to accomplish with this and with the writing, um, amazing honestly nothing short of amazing uh and i wait i just don't want to pass by him calling his time in prison free time to draw (laughs) i think it's just really valuable to remember that what we can do inside our heads and hearts we can do anywhere we find ourselves liberation is an internal process yeah absolutely true imprisonment is in the mind yeah, oh, it's it's all in your head. There's so many people doing it so tough in there, and I and it was all about my attitude, really. I was just like, all right, yeah, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You know, hopefully to to, to develop some new skills, and uh, let's see what I can do. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really it's, hard. Life's about your attitude, really. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to go to prison, and it's so admirable. To it's one of the joys of doing this podcast is we get to meet people who have that something 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 that yeah. makes them a little bit different, and it's some kind of a drive. It's a rebelliousness. It's an entrepreneurial spirit. It's an artist spirit, and it's such a joy to come across. So you're a real inspiration, Damien. This has been an amazing interview and a great yeah. opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, no, thanks. It's been great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you so much, our first Australian guest, and. Um, I'm definitely ordering the book. Uh, I'm going to read the book. Love to have you back on the show sometime so we could talk about the book. And I also have a, a bunch more stuff. I, you know, if we had more time, we could literally talk for like three hours about stuff. Um, so love to have you back sometime. Uh, again, thank you, Alon. Thank you, Meg. Um, the book, one more time, is Scarred. It's a psychological thriller. The website is Damien, L-I-N-N-A-N-E, can't say it enough, dot com. <laughs> And uh, check out the art, check out the book. And uh, until next time, you guys be safe. And don't forget, tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific time on StartupRadioNetwork.com. And we'll see you next week on Felony Inc. Podcast. Peace. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.